the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. As a constitutional law attorney, former senior legal advisor and personal counsel to President Donald J. Trump, Jenna Ellis believes in the rule of law and the importance of integrity in our elections. And she's ready to tackle the big cultural and legal issues facing America. This is the Jenna Ellis Show. Here is your host, Jenna Ellis. Happy Monday, friends, and welcome to the Jenna Ellis Show. I am Jenna Ellis, and I am very excited to talk to you today about the Supreme Court's next term. Today is October 4th, 2021, and this is the first full term that Amy Coney Barrett is sitting on the court because, as you remember, she uh, was appointed and confirmed to the Supreme Court uh, just a little bit into the term last year. So she had an investiture, which, interestingly enough, uh, Justice Brett Kavanaugh was not there because apparently he tested positive for COVID-19, even though uh, reports indicate that he's exhibiting no symptoms. But of course, um, you know, because this is such a, uh, in the midst of a, of a massive pandemic, you know, of course he is uh, not going to uh, go to that investiture. He didn't go to that. And whether or not he's going to show up for oral arguments is going to be the interesting question. So how the court decides to handle that, of course, uh, last term through the midst of the pandemic, the court heard oral argument by phone which was very interesting for a lot of the advocates. Uh, several of my friends had cases in front of the Supreme Court last term and um, just indicated how odd it was that you can't interact in person and how that affects a lot of the advocacy and the ability for the justices to truly hear from the advocates, uh, not just their argument, but um, you know the full in-person hearing, uh, I think was really interesting, but it was good that they at least heard cases. So uh, they will be in person this year, but uh, whether or not Justice Kavanaugh participates at least in the very uh, first beginning week remains to be seen. Um, But we're going to talk about a couple of really important cases. And before I get to that, um, I want to talk to you about my friends with uh, Legacy Precious Metals. Gold offers a hedge against inflation and protects you from the volatile financial markets. And in the midst of what we can only describe as a massive and total failure of government, um, the bottom line is that we're in the midst of a failed presidency. And as things continue to get worse, as hopefully the Supreme Court takes up cases and remains originalist, that remains to be seen. But Legacy Precious Metals is a company that you can trust to give you good, patient counsel for your personal situation. Their team of experts has decades of experience helping Americans like you and me make the right decision for ourselves and our families. So call Legacy Legacy Precious Metals today at 866-528-1903. That's 866-528-1903. Or you can visit them online at LegacyPMInvestments.com and download their free investor's guide. So we are going through 
the first uh, day and the session of the Supreme Court in 2021. And this, I think we can all agree, is going to be a test for how originalist and how conservative the Supreme Court actually will be now that we have a supposedly at least 5-4 majority of conservative originalists. I never put uh, Justice Roberts in the category of conservative because he is so interesting and unpredictable in a frankly very bad way for a jurist. Uh, The law should always be about predictability. As an advocate, when you go into court and you read the statute, you read the law that is applied, you read, um, of course, in the context of the Supreme Court, um, the constitutional issues that are involved, and you advise your client based on predictability factors. And when the law ceases to be predictable, then that has a really negative impact not only on each individual client and each individual situation, but also for the landscape uh, of the country as a whole. The fact that we have a sitting Supreme Court that really is not predictable and is given to the whim of activism and the majority of whether they are liberal activists or whether they are constitutional conservatives, that that indicates and will uh, delineate what their holdings are on cases is really not a good thing for the rule of law, for the judicial branch and how it was intended under Article 3 of the U.S. Constitution. And it's certainly not good for uh, for Congress, for the executive, uh, for state and local leaders either. When you have a constitution and a rule of law that's so malleable, that's given to this uh, kind of fluid nature as the liberals want to describe it, then we no longer have predictability in law. And, you know, for a lot of people, um, especially, you know, when you're young, you want to have like the unknown and the adventure. Well, there's a lot to be said for predictability, consistency, and being able to rely on a steady and consistent uh, rule of law. That's that's what law is and should be about, is predictability. Um, of course, we have the principle of stare decisis, which is that the courts uh, tend to go with prior precedent unless there is a good reason to overturn that precedent and go against what uh, the Supreme Court has held before. And of course, when you have all of these activist rulings and you have this this flip-flop between a conservative majority versus an activist majority, then you end up having a lot of cases that are overturned and then re-overturned. And then you have this very malleable standard. And we're seeing that especially in the context of abortion law. And we're seeing that, of course, on 1973 with Roe v. Wade and how that case really completely took entirely out of context uh, the the power that the federal government has to dictate to the states their compelling interest in protecting the life of an unborn child. And so uh, then, of course, in 1992 with Planned Parenthood versus Casey, uh, Roe was further cemented into law. But as we're seeing now, and I did a, a whole uh, show on this a couple weeks ago, I'd encourage you to listen to that because in that podcast, we dispelled the two biggest myths of abortion as it relates to law and the Constitution. Um, so definitely check that out. I don't want to rehash all of that here for those uh, who have already listened. And by the way, that was 
one of the top rated episodes so far. So thank you so much to all of the loyal listeners of the Jenna Ellis show and um, for everyone who's given really good feedback on um, this show and how you've appreciated um, the legal analysis, the political analysis that, of course, comes back to our roots in the Constitution, the Judeo-Christian worldview. Um, that's really meaningful. And I hope that um, that this show gives you the best arguments and an understanding of not just conservative politics, but actually bringing this down to our roots in what should be our objective, predictable, consistent rule of law, uh, our Constitution, based in a moral framework that doesn't change. Truth doesn't change. Um, science, while it's a theory that we can uh, prove or disprove, um, you know, the empirical world, um, the truth of reality doesn't change either. And so our law needs to be based in that objective truth. And then if we actually have a standard uh, which should be our U.S. Constitution and our very clear rule of law, then we don't have all of these flip-flops back and forth. But that's probably and frankly, hopefully, what we're going to be seeing through uh, the court's full term with especially some of these really important cases. And I'm hopeful that the new conservative majority of at least five will return back, not in an activist view, but they will return back to the original intent, the original text of the Constitution, which, as we all know, is uh, the specific limited enumerated powers given to the federal government. It's the sole obligation of government to preserve and protect the rights that our founders acknowledged. They didn't just decide on, they simply recognized as a matter of truth, come from God our creator, not our government. And so if our judicial branch is doing their job, uh, we don't want conservative activists either. Um, I am not at all an advocate for saying, okay, great, now that we have a conservative majority, then that means Republicans win every single time. Well, no, we still have to make arguments that are grounded in and based in the constitutional text and the language of the Constitution and protecting the specific limited powers of government. Uh, when I worked for President Trump and uh, was one of his advisors, uh, personal counsel, uh, the senior legal advisor of the campaign, um, there were so many times, obviously, he came to me for constitutional analysis and advice. And um, even within that context, even though, you know, President Trump um, is one, it still is one of the most ardent advocates for pro-life, for um, religious freedom, for so many of these things, you know, gun rights, all of these things that we as conservatives care about. It matters that he stayed during his first term within the margins of the U.S. Constitution and didn't just uh, say, well, now that I'm in power and I'm a conservative, then that means I can go and just issue whatever executive orders and policy that conservatives prefer. So that ends up, I think, for a lot of uh, conservatives, that ends up frustrating us to an extent because we're not activists like the left is. And so we don't take uh, kind of the easier or quicker way out of saying, well, let's just rule by executive fiat. Let's just issue all these executive orders. We actually say, no, there is a process to this. There are limited powers. And the president is not a king. He's not a dictator. Sorry, um, you know, CNN and ABC and MSNBC. Trump isn't a dictator and he never acted like it. And so that's why, for example, 
when he was contemplating immigration reform. His executive order that was back in, um, I believe it was either 2017 or 2018, was so brilliantly crafted because his executive order didn't actually issue policy. It didn't try to make new law, which of course the executive branch can't make law. They simply enforce and execute the law. All it said was that Congress, according to the Constitution, has to establish the uniform rule of immigration and naturalization. That's in Article 1, Section 8. And all it did was basically say, President Trump is going, Congress, you need to act. You need to do this. This is your obligation. And he put it back on them, which is their duty and their responsibility. But in 2021, and especially over the last you know, 50 and 60 years of a very activist court, I think we as conservatives have largely forgotten that principle, that we need to hold ourselves within the rule of law, within the text of the Constitution, within the separation of powers, within the enumerated limited powers, so that we still have the moral high ground, we have the best argument, and we can preserve our Constitution for future generations of Americans. Uh, because if we're not conserving the rule of law and we're just acting as activists, then we're no longer genuinely conservative. So this whole term conservative activist uh, really is kind of an oxymoron. You can't be a conservative in the true meaningful definition of that term and also want the Supreme Court and the judiciary to act as activists. Uh, we should always want the judicial branch to apply the rule of law as it was intended and as it is textually written. Now, are there kind of some gray areas? Absolutely. And there are definitely arguments within the structure of the law. You can, uh, and that's what you know lawyers do best, is they pick apart um, all of these statutes, they pick apart the law and the facts, and they make the best argument for their client. But what the judicial branch is obligated to do, and especially when it comes to the U.S. Constitution. It is very, very simple, and it is not as gray as the left and even some on the right would have you believe, because there are very, very limited subject matter that Congress uh, can legislate on. And even then, if you look at Article 3 and the judicial branch, um, how it was constructed, one Supreme Court uh, the ability for judicial review has gotten so completely massively uh, overreaching that the judicial branch is now commenting on things that are genuinely state issues. And so uh, abortion is one of those. And, and again, we talked about that at length um, in my prior podcast. Definitely go listen to that. Um, but that would be the easiest way for the Supreme Court to have a genuinely conservative ruling on this, on this particular case, which is Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. Um, this case that centers on the Mississippi law that bans abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy. So the question is, are all pre-viability elective abortions unconstitutional? Well, the easiest way for the court to respond to that question is to say, this is a state issue. This is something that Congress can't legislate on. We are not going to look at this so-called right to privacy that emanates from the Constitution. Well, no, this is a state issue. And of course, states have a compelling interest to protect uh, life at every stage of development from conception to natural death. 
and for states to contemplate what their restrictions on medical interventions that are specifically designated to and designed to uh, to cause the death of a child, absolutely the states can legislate on that. And then it would become a battle for pro-life within all the 50 states because obviously some other states uh, would not have restrictions on abortions and whether or not they have the power to allow that is a very interesting question and should be one that's on the state level. So I think this abortion case, um, this Dobbs case, is going to be very significant and probably the most significant case that the court hears this term. Uh, Definitely listen to the prior podcast. We dispel the top two myths of uh, of abortion law and uh, that the leftist talking points are wanting to feed you and wanting us to respond to that we just need to object to to the entire premise of what they're arguing. Um, so that case is going to be really interesting. But a couple more that I want to talk about in this podcast. Uh, the next one is New York State Rifle and Pistol Association Incorporated versus Bruin, which challenges a New York State law that requires anyone who wants a concealed carry permit to first prove to the licensing authority that they have a good reason for carrying the weapon, which can include self-defense. But this whole idea, the the problem with this is the same problem with red flag laws, right? Where you have to, as a citizen, prove your eligibility or fitness in some way to the government before you can exercise a right that the U.S. Constitution obligates the government to protect. So again, why on earth would this type of law be constitutionally sound if a citizen who is wanting to exercise their Second Amendment protected right have to prove to the government a good enough or sufficient reason to carry a firearm? That's absurd and ridiculous. And the last time the Supreme Court contemplated a gun rights issue, of course, was in 2008 with uh, the District of Columbia versus Heller. And that case acknowledged that uh, traditionally lawful purposes for carrying um, or possessing a firearm within the home was protected by the Second Amendment. So this case, um, I agree with a lot of my fellow scholars that this particular case of Bruin um, is going to contemplate then how far the court agrees that the Second Amendment protects our uh, right to carry firearms outside the home. So that's going to be a very interesting case. Um, That's going to be argued on November 3rd. Um, I should have said the abortion case is going to be argued December 1st. Uh, This case, the gun rights case, is going to be argued November 3rd. We probably won't see the opinions until later in the spring. Most often, for those who uh, continue to watch the court pretty closely, know that typically the end of June, which is the end of session, is when the Supreme Court holds their most controversial or uh, politically charged opinions because then they can just issue those and then they can go on break for a couple of months. So it's kind of like, okay, here, we're putting this out there and then we're retreating and we don't want anything else to do with this. So um, it could be that we get opinions in these cases much, much earlier. But uh, if you don't see these cases actually being decided with opinions until Uh, the end of June, that's not surprising. So, you know, don't worry about that. But, um, but again, 
you know, this just goes back to how conservative and originalist will the court actually be? Um, Are they going to decide cases and opinions based on the text of the Constitution and not saying, okay, we're going to read into the fact that the government or the Constitution, because of the text and the language of the Second Amendment, provides gun rights? That's not it at all. If you read our Bill of Rights in context. And I would encourage you to read Hamilton's 84, which talks about how uh, Alexander Hamilton didn't even think we needed a Bill of Rights because he argued in that Federalist paper, he's saying, you know, why should we have a Bill of Rights that restricts the government's ability to limit our rights when we've given the government no power to actually do that? So when we look at Federalist 84 in the context of the Second Amendment, which of course is part of the Bill of Rights, then the same analysis that Hamilton understood absolutely applies when he says that we've given the government, particularly the federal government, absolutely no power or authority by which to infringe or foreclose our constitutionally protected right to keep and bear arms and to possess weapons, whether that's in our homes or concealed carry or, um, you know, in any of these traditionally lawful purposes. But this is the whole idea of why Americans need to understand our Constitution and understand our Bill of Rights in context. And I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope that the Supreme Court will decide based not on politics or not on any of the precedent that has gone before, or even the language of the Second Amendment in the sense that it is in the Constitution and say, oh, well, just because the Second Amendment is in the Constitution, therefore we can decide when, where, and how you can exercise your right to keep and bear arms. No, they need to decide based on the Bill of Rights in the sense that it was originally intended, which is simply to say that the right to keep and bear arms is one that the government is obligated not to infringe upon. So this should be a very clear and easy decision. But again, it's going to challenge whether the court is originalist, whether it's conservative, and whether it is not activist and overly political. The problem with the Supreme Court, of course, is that they have almost this two-constitutions uh, two framework, where you have our actual constitution that's only a few pages long. It's very simple. It's not that difficult to read. And then you have these thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of what is constitutional law. And that's actually what's taught in law school, is constitutional law, not the U.S. Constitution. So operatively, now the Supreme Court almost rejects and ignores our Constitution in the sense that it was originally designed. And they do what's called proof texting, where they take one clause or phrase from the Constitution and they build an entire doctrine around it. And so when you hear them refer to the uh, the, the Second Amendment clause or the Establishment Clause, they're taking a couple words or a phrase, lifting it out of the Constitution, and then interpreting it in any way that they want to, which doesn't even make sense in the plain reading of the Constitution as an entire document. Um, And it's called proof texting because other types of professions do this all the time. So, for example, pastors, unfortunately, proof text all the time. And especially with topical sermons, you hear pastors who will take one verse 
totally out of context. They don't care the grammatical, historical, literal interpretation. They just take a key verse or word or phrase, they lift it out of its context, and they build a whole doctrine around it. And they preach around it, and it's really their ideas rather than teaching the truth of what is actually contained in that verse. Because, of course, when the authors of the Bible, um, of course, inspired by the Holy Spirit, were writing the Bible, um, they didn't attach all of these chapters and verse uh, in how the King James Version and, and later versions of the Bible expounded and, and, and kind of broke up each of uh, these books. It was much, much different. And very similarly, that's what the Supreme Court does with our U.S. Constitution. And we shouldn't let them get away with it. Um, that is actually the certified question as well in the case for Carson versus Macon, which is the third case that is really important coming up on the 2021-2022 docket. On December 8th, the court will hear the Carson versus Macon case that will have an enormous impact on whether religious institutions can benefit from state funding. And so this is going to ostensibly interpret the quote-unquote religious clauses of the Constitution and the Establishment Clause, right? That's what all of these reporters, if you go and you look, I was reading a piece from Time Today and NPR and a few others uh, talking about some of these cases. And if you go and look at them, they talk about how the court will uh, interpret and apply the religion clauses. Well, that's not what the Constitution is all about. The Constitution is all about the plain meaning of what it was intended to do, which is to provide specific, limited, enumerated powers to the federal government, and that's it. And then say, stop. That's all you have the power to do, federal government, which, by the way, federal government includes the U.S. Supreme Court. So Carson is a very interesting case that deals with a state-backed tuition program in Maine, which uh, gives tuition assistance to families in uh, areas around that state where they can send their kids to private school, which includes uh, funding for religious instruction in this particular instance uh, to families that were denied tuition assistance because they plan to use it to pay for Christian private schools. And traditionally speaking, there is no, and, and constitutionally speaking, there is no reason whatsoever that just because it's state assistance, that that means there is some so-called a separation of church and state and state-funded tuition assistance dollars are then denied to families and families are put on a... Uh, a discrimination plane and in a lower class of citizenship in terms of being able to be beneficiaries of state dollars just because they intend to use it for religious-based instruction instead of uh, regular secular instruction, which, by the way, is, of course, still a worldview. And so in that reality, we also understand that secular is really religious as well. But Obviously, that's not how uh, this particular case is set up. But um, but that's this would also be the same way as saying if you are a state employee that you can't use uh, any of your money that you receive as a worker, um, any of your employment dollars, just because you intend to use your money to fund your children's private school education. I mean, it's, it's the same principle 
And again, this is going to determine whether the court is actually conservative enough to not be activist, but to read the Constitution in the original sense in which it was designed. And if they do that, it's a very, very simple answer that, of course, uh, Christians, faith-based people should not be discriminated against or put in a lower class just because they intend to use uh, the same dollars that are given to every other parent for religious instruction versus uh, non-religious instruction. So that case is going to be very, very interesting. Um, Just in the last few minutes we have here, there are a couple of other cases that I also want to draw your attention to that we'll be tracking. And of course, as these opinions come out, um, I'm going to go through them with you and we'll have the conversation about how these impact precedent, how they impact uh, the constitutional analysis and uh, what goes on. And so, you know, this is why having this podcast I find so exciting. And I I know that you do too. And I'm really grateful again for all of the listeners here uh, because we can have these conversations and we can go through these cases in depth and what you need to know. Um, So one of the sponsors for The Jenna Ellis Show is my good friend, Mike Lindell. And by now you've all heard me talk about MyPillow and Mike now has done it again by introducing his new My Slippers. I'm so excited about these. Um, I have a pair of My Slippers. They're kind of awesome. And he has taken over two years to develop these. They're designed to wear indoor or outdoor all day long. So this is important if you're like me and you have to like go to the package room, the mailbox, you can actually wear them outside, not just indoors and then have to put something more uncomfortable on to go outside. They're made with MyPillow foam and impact gel to prevent fatigue and made with quality leather suede. So for a limited time, he's offering 50% off his new MySlippers. So go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio listener square, and you can use the promo code Jenna, that's J-E-N-N-A to get the new my slippers at this deep discount and on all my pillow products including the giza dream bed sheets the my pillow mattress topper my pillow towel sets call 1-800-564-8475 or go to mypillow.com use the promo code jenna and of course support mike lindell because he has been uh absolutely canceled by a vicious, vicious leftist culture. And I'm so proud that Mike is a sponsor of the Jenna Ellis show because he is a very good friend and I'm very glad to support him as well. So use the promo code Jenna at mypillow.com or call 1-800-564-8475. The last two cases that I want to highlight for you are uh, two cases actually that are that are in tandem that are dealing with the federal government's right to invoke its state secret privilege, um, which allows the government to refuse to release information in a litigation context if they determine that doing so poses a risk to national security. Uh, so there's two cases that are dealing with some of these sort of state secrets. That's going to have an impact. I think just uh, potentially on uh, litigation in terms of what the government does and doesn't disclose. So those will be interesting, and those will be heard in early November. And then also on October 13th, so coming up just next week, the court is also going to hear uh, the case of the Boston Marathon bomber, who, um, of course, that was a terrible tragedy in uh 2013, which killed three people, injured uh, hundreds of others. And the First Circuit Court 
converted the death sentence just to life without parole, uh, citing constitutional violations during the trial. And so the Supreme Court is going to determine whether the death sentence was rightfully rescinded and converted or whether the death penalty should be reimposed. Um, This is important, I think, from just a public interest perspective, because, um, of course, everyone in America was watching that case, was impacted by that incident um, during the Boston Marathon. But this will also have an impact um, on the greater uh, issue of the death penalty. Of course, that is a state-by-state issue, uh, but also does have constitutionally protected implications. And even if you look at someone like the Boston Marathon bomber, and you look at someone who obviously, you know, is a a, a horrific figure. Uh, you also have to look at the constitutionally protected rights of due process, and the founders put those in place even for people who commit just heinously grotesque crimes. The founders, in their wisdom, put the protections of due process, which include the right to a fair trial, uh, the right against cruel and unusual punishment. Um, all of the right to counsel in, in criminal cases, I mean, so many things, right? Um, they, they put all of these things as constitutionally protected rights in the Bill of Rights. Um, half of the Bill of Rights actually deal with criminal offenses. Well, why is that? Because criminal offenses are when the state or the government is prosecuting an individual private citizen for things that society, that government itself has designated as crimes. And there is so much that our founders knew that the government can take advantage of and can persecute rather than prosecute uh, individual citizens for. And they wanted to make sure that there were protections for individuals and that the presumption was the state has to prove their case beyond any and all reasonable doubt. They have to do so in such an upright, forthright manner uh, that does not take advantage at all of the system that affords every individual due process protections so that the state cannot, cannot foreclose individual liberty, the most sacrosanct uh, freedom that we enjoy after the right to life, obviously to enjoy anything, any other right, we have to first enjoy the right to life. But the right to liberty and freedom is so dear and so important that even for people who commit the most heinous of crimes, the presumption is they will still go free unless and until a prosecutor of the state can fulfill their burden of proof, their burden of production, according to the constitutionally protected rights of every citizen. And, and of course, the courts have extended that to even anyone, uh, citizen or not, that is charged under the laws of the United States. Uh, this is actually a good thing. Uh, this is something where even when you see people who have gone free and, you know, you or your family may be uh, victims of violent crimes that, you know, you've seen the process in in your view, and rightly so, uh, you know, your view of, of breaking apart and saying, you know, why did they go free? They were totally guilty. Well, that's why process matters. And our founders knew that process, procedural process, could be so taken advantage of and abused and manipulated that they wanted to embed these protections. Um, That's why you saw me and others fight so ardently 
against the overreach of the Democrats in both of the impeachment hoaxes uh, for President Trump. And I call them hoaxes because, you know, that's such an apt term that he used because the Congress and the Democrat majority Congress absolutely abused their authority. It was a procedural way that they were trying to hold him accountable only for totally unrelated political crimes, right? They hated Trump. And so they used the power of impeachment in order to bring about this politically motivated prosecution. And that's what impeachment is. It's, it is a prosecution of a sitting federal office holder. And in this instance, the president of the United States. And we can never allow process and procedure to be political. And we're seeing that so often in the United States now. And this particular case that the Supreme Court will hear about the Boston Marathon bombing, um, while there is a lot of nuance in this case, um, there's there are a lot of really interesting issues in this case. Um, it's an important one to highlight, not just because the death penalty, of course, is, um, is always a national conversation, but also because how the Supreme Court decides to handle this will also evidence its perspective on procedural due process. And that matters. That matters to every individual. It matters especially if you or a member of your family are ever prosecuted under any law, um, federal, state, local, um, municipal, of any law of the United States. Um, So we have to make sure, again, that we're looking at all of this in context. And even though in all of these cases that we've discussed today, Um, We all have political opinions. We all have um, just opinions generally on how these cases should go. But as constitutional conservatives, we always have to bring it back to what does our U.S. Constitution provide as the limited powers to government? How, if, if they have, how have they overstepped? How can we make sure to keep that in check? And then we always leave the policy and the politics to the political branches. The Supreme Court is never intended to be a political branch or to have a political opinion. And if any of these justices want to have political opinions, take off your robe, run for Congress, run for president, you know, vote, run for your local school board. I mean, have politics within the confines of where politics and policy are obligated in the United States. And that's why we have a separation of powers And this was so critical to address today uh, because today when the Supreme Court starts its term, I hope that we are all praying for our justices. Um, The Bible says to pray for our leaders and the Supreme Court are absolutely leaders, uh, even though they're not political leaders, they are still government leaders and they will lead the way in shaping the law and the constitutional law that comments on, analyzes, and Uh, and ultimately interprets our U.S. Constitution. And that will have a lot of impact on our future, our children's future, and uh, where we go from here. So so let's be praying for the Supreme Court. uh, As these cases and these opinions are handed down, we'll certainly discuss them. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.